Welcome to the Secrets to Mindful Health podcast. I am your host, Beth Warren. Our topic today is I had the baby, now what? <laughs> Nourishing your baby, what you need to know to start. What are the myths and facts of infant and toddler nutrition process of baby led weaning? And is it right for me? Picky eaters, who are you, first of all? And how do we help you manage that and encourage more healthy food choices? I'm joined by a top expert who I know and love and cherish. She is with me today. Her name is Melina Malkani. She is a registered dietitian like myself, uh, specializing in pediatrics, author, speaker, single mom of three behind Instagram and TikTok handle Healthy Mom, Healthy Kids, a top nutrition influencer dedicated to educating her combined audience of over 140,000 followers about infant and childhood nutrition. Melina is a trusted expert in local and national media outlets and owns a nutrition consulting company and private practice that helps caregivers feed their babies with confidence. She's the author of a lot of books, Simple and Safe Baby Led Weaning, How to Integrate Foods, Manage Portion Sizes, Identify Allergies. Oh, I'd also love to talk about allergies. Note that. Safe and Simple Baby Led Weaning and Solve Picky Eating. Her new book, though, The Safe and Simple Food Allergy Prevention, A Baby-Led Feeding Guide to Starting Solids and Introducing Top Allergens is due out on November of 2024, with the publisher, Ben Bella Books, distributed through Penguin Random House. That's so exciting. A Forbes Health Advisory Board member since 2022, member of Advisory Council for the RWJF Reframing Child and Health and Obesity. And she is the former national media spokesperson for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, plus her master's in NYU. I mean, it goes on and on. And I always tell people that I love reading people's bios because this is true facts from a clinical perspective and education, but also as a mom. So you have both perspectives. Welcome. Thank you so, so much. It is so good to see you. I feel like it's, it's just, we were just saying it's been a while. We met through Samantha Heller on Dr. Radio a couple mm -hmm. times. I think it was before the pandemic was the last time we were together in the studio. And I just, I just loved being with you. I felt we clicked and had so much to talk about and for sure. We always just had a organic dynamic. And also as moms, I mean, it, I feel also we had some kids around similar ages. I think my audience knows I have six kids. So, yeah. so someone usually has a child in, in my scope of kids. So I think we offer a really nice perspective today, both as registered dietitians, treating pediatrics, but also kids ourselves and moms. So I hope everyone can learn because this is what I want to jump right into Whenever it relates to pregnancy, breastfeeding, even fertility, and then having kids, I find the most angst from parents of, oh my God, like, what do I do? Like they're latching on for help and hope because there's quote unquote, no manuals, except now your books, but there's no <laughs> user manuals, which is why I titled this. I had the baby. Now what? And I think it's funny that people comment to me, oh, Beth, are you done? Are you going to have more kids? And I said, the thing people don't tell you is that once you have them, you have to raise them. It's, <laughs> it's a whole nother part. So what, what do people come to you with when they're first coming to you for help? How do they sound to you? Well, it's such a great 
I think this is such an important topic because there so many people are quite lost, but there's also so much pressure to do it right and to do it perfectly. And especially if you're a first-time mom or a first-time parent, you don't have a roadmap and each baby is so completely different. I'm sure you've experienced this with your six. Mm-hmm. Every time you think that you, you know, someone knows what they're doing or if you have someone who's a role model and says, this is how it's going to go and this is going to be great. And, you know, here's what to do. Then you have your own baby and you can be met with an entirely different set of challenges or, you know, just a different type of personality. And so to have um, to have that in your scope when you're trying to do things and nourish your baby as well as you possibly can, it could be really challenging at first. And then when people go online or on Instagram or on on, you know, and look for a book that they'll find a lot of conflicting information. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is because nutrition is such a new science. And so it it seems like there's a lot of conflicting information. Really, it's just the process of, of us learning more and gathering more evidence about nutrition and being able to make better recommendations as clinical professionals in the field. But also, again, every baby is different. So what mm-hmm. works for some person might not work for you and your baby. And so that can be really difficult to sift through. Absolutely. So So how do you feel like people should start? Do they start with the textbooks, talk to their pediatricians, listen to their mother? (laughs) How should they start? And where should they go from there to know if what they're doing is right or wrong? Well, the best place to start you know, with any baby is really with the pediatrician Mm -hmm. and to start having those conversations about feeding early on with the pediatrician. um, What we've learned so much more about in the last few years really is about the prevention of food allergies. Mm -hmm. And that is an emerging science that we're learning so much more about. And and we've really, we've come so, so much further than we were even 10, 5, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and the, and the advice has changed radically. And we know now that we really need to start thinking about this earlier than previously thought. Right. Meaning don't wait for it to become an issue or realize it's an issue, preempt certain things. Yes, that, but also, um, the, in, in terms of the prevention of food allergies, we want to look at a baby's level of risk for food allergies Mm. and Example, the highest, the strongest risk factor for the development of food allergies is severe eczema. So if you have a baby between, you know, zero and four months, let's say, and that severe eczema has emerged, and it's a baby where you're not really able to control that eczema without intervention, then that's a baby who's going to be a really great candidate for very early introduction of mm-hmm. Nut and egg. We found that opposite of what you feel, then, right? Opposite, opposite. And it between four and six months can feel really early to start really prioritizing the introduction of these foods, which don't feel like foods that you would feed an infant. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like peanuts are the most maybe intuitive early food for babies. It do for sure need to be uh, modified in order to make them safe for babies. But we have found that particularly for those high-risk infants between four and six months of age to start introducing peanut early and then consistently can actually reduce the development of allergies by over 80%. Wow. Which is 
an incredible statistic. It's, it's really astounding. I mean, yes. Over 80%. I mean, it's refreshing though, in a way, because we've known that food allergies have grown. And especially when let's say peanut allergies became huge and people just felt like they succumb to the, oh yeah, you know, we're just, most of us are going to end up having peanut allergies or it's so common. Yeah. But what we're saying is now actually, if it's common or you're seeing signs of risk factors, then you actually might want to start it even earlier, which sounds scary and counterintuitive, but it actually does make sense because of this, the introduction of it and how the cells work. Um, yeah. Is it it's also a- related to family history perhaps? Or is it- Family history is less of a risk factor than we once thought. Mm. There is a small, particularly with parents, if you have a parent who has a food allergy, your risk is slightly higher, but really it is eczema that is that severe eczema, which is that strongest risk factor. Existing food allergy, so a diagnosed food allergy to say egg increases the likelihood of a food allergy to another food. Mm-hmm. But family history is, is a lot less, it's much, much smaller um, uh, indicator of the likelihood of a, devel- of a development of a food allergy. It's funny. I think of my mom, who's my third doctor, let's say. <laughs> my mom knows best, but she insists I, I am actually one of seven speaking of kids. And my, yes. And my youngest sister is the only one that has food allergies and she has peanut allergies. My mom likes to joke. It's because she was obsessed with peanut butter while being pregnant, but we're saying actually, if that was a thing, potentially could have had the opposite effect, not the other one. And also I find it interesting that I had, this is years ago, you know, I'm sure, you know, in private practice as well, there's certain things that stick out at you that you'll always remember. Yeah. And one was I was counseling a mom who was here for weight management and she had a new infant. And I always love and appreciate and love seeing when they bring their kids and she would come consistently weekly and she brought her kid. And I also get to know these kids because I'm holding them while their mom weighs in. And, yes. and you know, like I said, I have six, so I'm always missing babies. So I live vicariously through my clients' babies and I'm holding <laughs> them a lot. So I sort of get to know the babies too. And I'm noticing that the baby is starting to have extreme eczema and I'm not a doctor and I don't pretend to be, but we build a relationship with our clients. And I did casually mention or ask about it. She said, oh yeah, you know, she waved it off because what we're, what I would love to speak to is when we know that something's normal or not normal as a new mom, you really don't know. And, or you, you never know because something could always change, but you really never know. And I just casually mentioned and suggested that she might want to ask her pediatrician about it. She ended up testing for allergies and he was allergic to dairy and till this day, cause thank God, again, I build relationships with my clients years later, I see them or I see their kids for counseling their other kids. And I would love to see this kid, but I haven't been in practice that long. Mm-hmm. has been almost 13 years, but she told me that I, she keeps crediting me to the fact that she got, uh, he got diagnosed from allergies because I mentioned to go ask the doctor. Oh Yeah. And it's just so interesting that we flags are important to learn about. And one that you're even saying now is even more clinically proven because just back then I, I, I sort of, I wouldn't say I knew like I'm some sort of researcher in my own way, but I, obviously it's an inflammatory reaction that, that deserves, you know, a little bit of research if it's, 
let's call it explosive and chronic and not going away. Like you said, hard to yeah, manage. Yeah. So I, I love that there's more science around that and giving people more tangible signs than just, are you crying too much or too little? You know, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, as dietitians, I think we really love that something that's actionable that our clients can do that can possibly have a really beneficial effect. And with eczema, it's interesting. People often wonder like, what, what is the connection between eczema and food allergies? We don't know with 100% certainty, but researchers that there's a, um, a hypothesis that has to do with where the allergen enters the skin and how, and how the allergen enters the body. So if it mm -hmm. enters the broken skin, the hypothesis is that signals to the immune system that that allergen is unsafe for the body. And so it, it can trigger an immune reaction and trains the system to think, oh, this is not safe. Whereas if we ingest the allergen and it, and it enters for the first time through the digestive tract, it can train the system to say, oh, this is a protein that is safe and that we can recognize and then, you know, not have a reaction to if we come across it again. And so it's, it's something actionable that we can do as, as first time parents and as parents of new babies is to think about, you know, when and how we introduce allergens. Can we do it early? Once we've introduced them, if they are tolerated, can we keep them in the diet frequently? Mm -hmm. And that's that we can do to help reduce the likelihood of allergy development. And it's, it's really, we, we really know the most about peanut egg. We know a lot about too. And those, those two allergens are really kind of the, the highest priority to get those in early. Mm -hmm. Um, Another statistic that speaks to me so loudly and kind of gets me beating the drum about early introduction is that after six months of age, every month we wait, um, the protective effect of early intro is reduced by 30%. Wow. So we got to do it early. We got to yes. do it early. We have so, to do it early. Wow. And it's a matter of also listening to the right people on the right researchers, the experts, like you said, just jumping on random social media, not following through with the experts. And you would, I'm sure would even encourage, even as people watch your stuff to still work with you directly, because even that isn't something to hold by. And I'm reason why I'm expressing that is because I would think the only reason why people wouldn't introduce it is because someone else told them don't do that, you know, or totally. oh my goodness, yes. because we're so <laughs> susceptible to what, like you said, wanting to do it right. I think the way you started was exactly right because you're so pressure to do it right because you want to nourish your baby correctly. And then also you want to feel like you're doing the perfect job. So just keep focused, breathe and follow the expert advice and then stick with it. Um, but is there a right way to introduce foods? Like they used to say, you know, I, I mean, going through even all my six kids, I have six different handouts of what the pediatrician has given me with yes. to start with. Don't start with fruit. It's going to be too sweet. You know, don't ever introduce veggies. And I know you've shared a lot of that on your social media. So how should people go about starting to introduce foods now with the allergens in not only in the back of their mind, in the forefront of their mind, and especially more so for, for kids with eczema and other telltale signs, which is huge. But now how do we go about introducing foods? And I know you wrote a whole book on baby led weaning and that you became an expert in that. So tell us about it. I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I I feel like in my work and in my in my pediatric nutrition blog and in my Instagram and in my books and all of all of my writings at this point, I really try to be kind of a, a voice, a, a sort of centrist voice that takes in all of these different opinions. And there are strong opinions mm -hmm. about 
solids and just kind of boils it all down to, okay, there is no perfect way to do this. There really isn't. There are lots of different methods. One is not necessarily better than the other, as long as when you're starting solids, you're looking for the signs of readiness, developmental readiness mm. to see if they're developmentally ready and somewhere around six months of age. Six months of age seems to be the age where developmentally we're going to start to see those signs, which are things like being able to have enough trunk support to sit upright, having enough head and neck control so that it's not too much bobbling around. That helps reduce the likelihood of choking because a baby can sit upright. Uh, being able to grasp objects and bring them up to the mouth, that's going to indi uh, indicate a readiness to self-feed. And self-feeding is something that if you're going to do baby led weaning, the baby needs to be developmentally if ready. If you're going to have a life, you need to have the baby self-feed. I have a friend till this day, thank God has five kids. And I went over her house and she's sitting there with her child with avocado, like spoon feeding and crushing it. Oh. And she claimed, because after five, you recognize an element of necessary self-feeding, but she just didn't want to mess. I said, no, it yeah. doesn't happen. It doesn't happen both ways. You either let them self-feed <laughs> and make a mess or you do what she's doing, which is crazy. So yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah, that's okay. No, it's so true. And that, that's a great example of how, I mean, there's there are different goals of infant feeding, right? And there's different priorities that, that people have. Some people, for them, the mess is really difficult. That's actually one of the things that people reach out to me about all the time. Like, I really want to do baby-led weaning. I hear about all these wonderful benefits of it, but the mess yes, is so stressful for me. And so, you know, I think one of the things that now there are a lot more kind of middle of the road, reasonable voices out there who are saying, okay, if you can do baby-led weaning and you can do purees and it's not going to confuse the baby to do both. It's, you know, you can do a couple of different feeding models and there's no detrimental, there's no evidence that's going to be detrimental to the baby. It's not going to confuse the baby. It's actually going to give the baby a lot of different variety yeah. because purees are a really important texture too, just like any other. Right. To learn. You know, baby but led just weaning to boil it down a second. So baby-led weaning is defined as what? So baby led weaning is a method of infant feeding. It started trending, you know, maybe a decade or so ago, maybe 15 years ago, but it's nothing new. It's It's been around for thousands of years. We've been feeding babies food from the family table for, you know, as long as we've, as people have been around mm -hmm. uh, and, and with minor modifications to make them soft and safe enough for a baby to chew and swallow and mash down with gums. But, but it's technically the process of feeding a baby finger foods from the family table for self-feeding. And minor modifications would be things like steaming the food to make sure that it's soft and squishy enough for them to mash down with their gums. Um, it needs to be a food that they're able to either um, something resistive that they can just sort of chomp on and gnaw on, but that won't break off into larger pieces in the in the mouth and pose a choking risk, or something that's soft enough where if they do get out, out of bite and they're they've got it in their mouth, they can mash it down and then swallow it with their gums. Mm -hmm. um, and that's and this is different from a more conventional kind of parent-led um, method of spoon feeding or or feeding of purees via spoon. Even as you describe it, you can tell why it makes so much sense on many levels that also people later complain about, such as um, 
more variety of foods, like being less of a picky eater because they have exploring more. And then also the whole intuitive hunger fullness feeling obviously is better met like that. There's a difference between encouraging kids to eat because, you know, they could be distracted versus like spoon feeding and having to finish the whole jar. And I feel like eventually led to baby led weaning on my own, like I said, through six, just with trial and error. So we're trying to like save everybody having to have six and know from (laughs) now that it is really something you should consider because it leads to more, less of a risk of other headaches, call it maybe thank God every there be safe either way, but less headaches later on that I deal with, with six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, if you teach them this now. So how can I it love improve? That. Well, so it's, it's so, I love that you brought that up because it's something that there's, there's so many threads between what I do in pediatrics and what you do in counseling people in, you know, do you, you do some weight management, right? You do yeah. some of that. Quite a bit, mm-hmm. even well, with kids, yeah. With and even with kids. So the the piece that I think is really fascinating about all of it is that when you boil down infant feeding to its most kind of um, advantageous and beneficial concepts, the one that sticks out to me the most is responsive feeding. Whether you're doing purees, whether you're doing baby led weaning, if you are allowing a baby to listen to their own cues for hunger and fullness. If you're responding to those cues, instead of, you know, shoving a bite of food in the baby's mouth when they're distracted or pursing their lips, but they happen to open and you shove it in because you think that you need more food, that can actually lead to them sort of um, disconnecting between their own recognition of their feelings of hunger and fullness, which down the road, I I don't know if I told you this, I started my career in weight management and bariatric surgery at the Bronx VA. So I I was seeing veterans really struggling with an inability to tell when they're hungry and when they're full down Mm -hmm. the road, sort of the fallout of that um, inability to self-regulate. So if with infant feeding, we're starting from the very beginning with this, with this, um, reinforcement of those of that ability to tell when you're hungry and you're full and leaning into that then we're raising a generation of of people that eat very intuitively from the very beginning and that's one of the reasons why i was so drawn to baby led weaning because that process is just built right in the babies are born with this amazing innate ability to meet their needs and eat up until that you know they've had enough and they don't need it anymore. And they and when we just give them a variety of different healthy foods throughout the day at regular intervals, they'll meet their needs and they'll eat just as much as they need. It's us that gets in the way Absolutely. of that process. And that's what I was just going to bring up, how it also changes the whole dynamic that you will develop with your child around food and eating as well. You'd sort of like say, you know what, um, I'll take a hands-off, you know, approach in general later on because- you're used to sort of having them have a partnership in their own eating. And I also found it encouraging me. I mean, talk about the mess and just like the dynamic in the kitchen. It helped me help my kids um, start like help me cook or get involved in the kitchen. I just feel like the whole nature is different, but let's touch on this whole picky eating thing because that's another thing. I mean, it's honestly, it's a term that makes me cringe because (laughs) I hate labels. Because yeah. I feel it builds a box, but I understand that what people mean is that their children are extremely selective. And right now we're identifying one way you can 
we can't go backwards, but a great method that can help encourage less picky eating. But what else can we do to help parents with quote unquote picky eaters and how, yeah, how can we help them? Yeah. I want to back up for one second because I think that, I mean, baby, baby led weaning is amazing. And there's, we've, we've kind of pointed to a lot of the potential benefits of it, but a lot of people reach out to me in my work and say, I did all the things I did the baby led weaning. I did. all, And I still ended up with a picky eater. And I, mm. and so I want to just send this right. out to all those folks and say, you yeah. can do everything quote unquote, right. And still end up with a picky eater The picky eating. There's some, there's a, a lot of developmental, um, I don't, I don't even like the word normalcy either, but it's developmentally expected in a lot mm -hmm. of ways from an evolutionary perspective mm -hmm. that somewhere along the way, a child is going to exhibit some signs of picky eating and picky eating is, is really kind of a spectrum, right? There's like, there's your sort of garden variety picky eating and the toddlers that, you know, toddlers come along and they start having opinions and they, they want to be able to exert some control over some area of their life. And we, we decide when they put their shoes on, we decide when they go to bed and when they take a nap. So this, whether they put food in their mouth is an area where they can control. So it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And on the other end of the spectrum, then we have our extreme picky eaters and that that's really can be really, really difficult. There can be some sort of an oral motor delay or a food allergy that a child can't um, communicate. And mm -hmm. so it ends up looking like picky eating, but it's just an undiagnosed food allergy or some other developmental delay that's making it very difficult for them to eat. And there's so mm -hmm. many reasons why that can be the case. So, so I just want to, you know, sort of put that out there because um, picky eating is, is such a blanket term for such an array of different things. And sometimes people, I think, feel like when they hear the word picky eating, it's not accurately describing what they're going through, you mm -hmm. know? Um, but that being said, I think one of the most important things to do when you're struggling with it is to reach out to someone who specializes in pediatric nutrition and can sort of take a look at the situation and go through and say, well, what are what is the driver behind that picky eating with you? So that if it is your garden variety picky eating, then you can kind of lean into, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, the division of responsibility between mm -hmm. parents and kids and sort of leaning into that trust that you've built as you've fed your baby in an, and leaned into that uh, responsive feeding and an ability of your child to self-regulate and say, okay, I'm going to offer the foods and I'm, it's, I'm going to decide when they're served and what is served and where, where that food is served. And I'm going to allow my child to decide whether and how much to eat. Mm -hmm. And if growth is growing appropriately, if, if, the, if the baby is meeting their developmental milestones and maintaining their percentiles in the growth chart, like you can feel really good about that and yeah. sort of put your blinders on and, and just keep on offering the food and it's going to work out. Absolutely. I love that you <laughs> ended with that, the keep on offering the food. Too many times parents say, oh, they don't like it. So then I find out they never make it anymore. Obviously we don't want food waste, but you still have to have a variety of foods available. You can't just, that's like, I'm like, oh, you know, problem number one, like don't stop oh, offering really? it because they change all the time. I have my kids surprise me all the time. Suddenly someone's nipping at the salmon I made. I'm like, oh my God, she never yes. ate And I'm like, you know, yeah. secretly happy doing a dance. You can never assume. And I see this with fish all the time. I don't know if you do, but I kind of like just to call one out 
when parents yeah. come with a child and they say, oh, I don't eat fish, but my child doesn't know I don't like fish. Like, oh, does she eat fish? No, she doesn't eat fish, but she, but it's not because of me. And it's not because I don't make it. I'm like, fish is one of those smells that you have to get used to. And sometimes it feels familiar later on in life. Like, oh, I remember my mom used to make fish and it always smelled. So, okay, they might be turned off, but they might also feel it's familiar. And then they might end up eating it Yeah. So later yeah. on. it's See, that's what parents need to remember. As much as, of course, we want to make sure they're safe now, a lot of what we're doing as parents in general is setting them up to be healthy and responsible, you know, adults in every way too. And a lot of this is just send it, setting the groundwork. And like you said, you're, you're putting it out there, but then you're standing back like in anything in parenting, but that's it. Like you're hand holding a little bit and then you're letting it go. And I, yeah. I think that parents are missing that as if not the biggest component to why they're doing a lot of things with nutrition and how they feed their kids. And that's also when I see it all the time in my practice being around longer is I'll see a child like eight years old and we're just working on behavioral modifications, let's say related to um, maybe impulsivity with eating or, or other habits like that, but also nutrition education on just learning the let's say important of vegetables on the plates because they also help make you feel full. So it's okay. It's your choice if you don't want to eat a vegetables, but you might not be as full and teaching those things. So in the beginning, they're like, oh, okay, I don't care. It's disgusting. Right. But later <laughs> on in life when they really are hungry and they're growing and like, you know what? I remember learning if I add vegetables, I might get full. And then you see them start to do it. I mean, that's just a very black and white example, but later on, it's incredible that if you set the right foundation, they develop talk about develop, develop into a maturity that starts to remember because you put it out there, but then you held back. Yeah. So. I think the pitfall with that is that we, we get so caught up in the what of nutrition with kids. We think you know, you're used to as an infant very early on, you're doing breast milk or you're doing formula and you're nourishing the baby with these really important nutrients. And yes, the nutrients and the foods themselves are very important, but I think that the how of feeding that you were just talking about, the repeated exposures, the role modeling, the including kids in the process of preparing food and, and thinking about a meal plan and getting food on the table. These are all parts of the how of feeding, eating alongside your kids, doing family meals that over time, and it's not easy. I'm not saying mm -hmm. this is easy, but it chips away at that, or I don't want to say chips away, it kind of adds to a nutritious lifestyle over time, but it's not overnight. It's not something they, they don't come out of the womb going, Oh, I'm going to eat a variety of different foods. You know, that some of which are asparagus and some of which are salmon. These are acquired tastes that can Absolutely. take time to build a rapport around and a, and a taste for. And so you're right. When you, when a child refuses a food and we throw up our hands and say, well, I'm not going to serve it again. It does a real disservice to that child because they don't then get a chance to start building comfort and familiarity and a taste for that food. And down the road, they're like, well, I don't like that. Well, how do you know you don't like that? You haven't had a chance to keep on eating it. So right. that, that's the real challenge. And I think someone like you and someone like me can be really helpful, a really helpful touchstone along the way to say, okay, I'm doing all these things. I'm doing the repeated exposures. I'm including my child in food prep. I'm doing the family meals and nothing's moving. Well, then let's take a look together. Where are the nutrient gaps? How can we fill them in? Where are we having trouble uh, maintaining those growth percentiles? Mm -hmm. How can we support you and help you 
and make sure your, your child is getting all the nutrients they need to thrive and grow while these lessons are being learned. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of the, the art and science of nutrition. Um, it's not, none of it's easy. It's not easy. Um, but I think over time, when you think of it as a, as more of a marathon than a sprint, it really is possible to grow a really healthy eater that over, over the lo- course of a life can end up nourishing themselves really well. Absolutely. I love how you put that because there's a educational aspect to this, not just a what to eat and especially in kids. And yeah. if you approach it from both angles, then it sort of kind of meets in a nice way. So I really appreciate having you on. Um, your book is focused on the food allergy aspects, your new one. What can we look forward to with your new book? Uh, yeah, so it's funny. My So my baby led weaning book, um, came out in 2020, right, right before the pandemic hit. Um, and it, it was received really well. It's been really lovely. Um, if it had a, um, if there was kind of an ask for a follow-up, it was, I want a plan, a specific roadmap for what and how to introduce and when and how to introduce the top allergens to help reduce the development of food allergies. So this is kind of the answer to that. It is a cookbook. So the oh, beginning of it is a guide. Yeah, it's, 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 I had a lot of fun with it. The beginning of it is a whole guide to baby led feeding, starting solids, all the things that we just talked about in the beginning. It's not a baby led weaning book. It mm-hmm. is. It takes kind of a middle of the road uh, approach, some purees, some baby led weaning, some finger foods, some puree, you know, a little, little bit of both. Um, so that you can just provide a variety. And then it walks you through the history of, of uh, food allergy prevention, where we were, how we got to where we are now, and what the science says now. And then it tells you exactly how to do it. So there's a, a, a eight-week meal plan, and then there's 80 recipes that make it really easy for you to then introduce the allergens and keep them in the diet regularly, but not with just baby food. It's it's recipes that you can serve to the entire family. So that, you know, as a mom of six on your end and as a mom of three on my end, that is really important because creating one separate meal for one member of the family and then something totally separate for everybody else is exhausting. It is exhausting. A road to burnout. So this is my answer to that. I hope it's going to help a lot of families just feel more at ease with the process of introducing allergens and how to do it safely, um, how to be prepared while doing it and how to do it in a way that's yummy. I love it because I mean, I'm listening to you speak and I don't even know currently any book like that. And I wish there was a book like that. And I don't say that often because I read a lot and find all the books, but that is such, it's not even just the niche. It's so vital now in the development of kids because food allergies are so prevalent and wow, just amazing. And we can follow you on both TikTok and Instagram at healthy.mom.healthy.kids. And it's amazing. You have such cute content. You put your kitties on there sometimes and you have your little infographics and it's so cool. So everyone follow her there. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to see you. You too. Don't forget to tune in for more episodes on Spotify. And be sure to follow us on TikTok at Instagram at Nourished by Beth for more wellness ideas.